Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock, and in today's episode, I speak to Professor Ryan Kahlo. Ryan is the Lane Powell and D. Wayne Gittinger Professor of Law at the University of Washington School of Law. He is founding co-director with Betia Friedman and Tadayoshi Kono of the Interdisciplinary UW Tech Policy Lab, and together with Chris Coward, Emma Spiro, Kate Starbird, and Jevin West, uh, the UW Center for an Informed Public. In this conversation, we speak about Ryan's involvement with UW Tech Policy Lab as well as the UW Center for an Informed Public, and uh, also discuss interdisciplinary academic work more generally as well as uh, focusing on a particular piece of research, uh, Ryan's writing on the implications of increasing use of automated systems by administrative agencies. I'm sure you will enjoy our conversation. Hello, Ryan Kahlo. Hi, Nicholas. Ryan, you are co-founder of the UW Tech Policy Lab, and you're also part of the Center for the Informed Public at the University of Washington. What is your motivation behind joining these uh, or co-founding some of these organizations and what is their mission? Well, I have the sense um, in my career that there are very few important societal problems that we could gain traction on by reference to any one discipline. And so I've devoted my career, especially over the last eight years, to finding ways to put together interdisciplinary teams to work on important issues. Um, And so the Tech Policy Lab, um, it it is an interdisciplinary unit that formally bridges computer science, information science, and law, Mm -hmm. but but also has uh, closely affiliated faculty from linguistics and urban design and electrical engineering and so on. And uh, our mission is to help policymakers broadly understood make more wise and inclusive tech policy. Um, And we do that primarily by, again, assembling interdisciplinary teams and working on specific issues, whether they be uh, augmented or virtual reality, which we did a bunch of years ago and is now newly sort of salient with with Facebook um, moving into that space, worked on autonomous vehicles in cities. We have a project on technology and farming um, anyway, we, we, we have a range of topics that we cover mm-hmm. um, from, a, from, a, from a multidisciplinary perspective. The center is similarly interdisciplinary, uh, but it has a kind of a different focus and a different mode of operation. But, but, but at the heart of both is, a, is an intuition that we have to work across disciplines in order to make headway. Yeah, and um, definitely on a topic that I think most people would agree is probably one of the biggest events of um, all of our lifetimes, right? So the impact of new technologies on pretty much all aspects of our lives. I think uh, your work with the uh, Center for Informed for an Informed Public, I believe that's what it's called, right? Yeah, the Center for an Informed Public. I think that's probably the topic that 
comes to mind first for people when they think about this, right? That um, you're obviously dealing a lot with the impact of misinformation, disinformation, and just how to make sense of what, what the world is really like, I suppose, uh, when you spend a lot of time on social media. Do you think that focus is um, warranted? I mean, it's without question an extremely important topic, but does it possibly drown out other issue areas in this space that you feel like um, should really demand more attention? Well, you know, look, I mean, public attention is like a, is like a spotlight Mm -hmm. And and it shines in a particular area for, for a time, and it probably shines a little too brightly. But what I would say is that misinformation and disinformation are critical areas of study because until the last, you know, I don't know, five years or so, I think that they were understudied. Not not that mm -hmm. they weren't not that they weren't studied. There were there were certainly people doing that work, uh, including my colleagues and, and others. But uh, but under understudied, under under theorized, not understood well enough. And if you think about it, misinformation and disinformation is a real root issue mm -hmm. because because how can you have conversations about anything else? Mm -hmm. Politics, uh, climate change health policy, including vaccinations and masks and so on. Um, you can't talk about anything if, if, if the discourse is, 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 is pervaded, is, if, if misinformation and disinformation pervades the discourse. And so it's the kind of thing that should be studied on itself because so many different systems and ecosystems and conversations would benefit if we were able to uh, address uh, even even you know somewhat uh, the 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 prevalence of misinformation and disinformation. Absolutely, yeah. But I mean, as as you're mentioning, right? This field is extremely vast, and um, uh, if I were to try or attempt to abstractly define your own uh, research agenda, I would say, yeah, maybe maybe focuses on on just legal issues that arise from the use of new technologies. Do you feel like that's fair, or is that too too broad? Well, Nicholas, you know, I, I think that I think you can't do interdisciplinary work without disciplines, mm -hmm. and that my particular discipline is, of course, law and policy. I'm mm -hmm. interested in the levers of power. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm interested in how rules are created and interpreted, right? And I think that's that's an important component if you're looking at the societal impacts of emerging technology, but it is far from the only component. Absolutely. Right? And, yeah. and so, and so um, while I, I may approach these issues from a particular set of assumptions and training and methodology, again, um, I don't generally try to do that by myself. I right? see. And, and so I, I usually hold hands with folks across other disciplines. And, you know, the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately has been how do we how do we approach interdisciplinary problems together in a rigorous way? Because interdisciplinary work is difficult. Mm -hmm. um, you have to talk across entire vocabularies. You have to have different, you have even different terminology. Like for mm -hmm. example, the word normative means something different in you know, moral and political theory. It means something different in, in law. It means something different in sociology. It just has these literally the same word, Nicholas, mm -hmm. will not mean the same thing. And so the other, the other function that I feel like I serve often on teams is as a translator mm -hmm. um, across disciplines. And just to be clear, 
the translator is not the leader, right? I mean, if you if you go to the UN and you go to the Security Council, there's a bunch of translators, but they're not the ones making the decisions, right? They're right. the ones allowing people to talk to one another. That's a role that I often take on because I feel like I'm reasonably good at it. And as a matter of fact, in general, lawyers and by extension law professors are pretty good at it because we train our students to understand a context well enough in order to effectively argue about it. Mm -hmm. That's what we do, right? So we, we, we want, um, whether it's a, a new patent of, uh, on some product you have to understand or it's some dispute over land or whatever it is, we teach our students to get to understand the factual and social context well enough to be able to argue about it and be able to talk about it in a convincing way. And so as a consequence, we inadvertently as a side effect, train lawyers to be pretty good at interdisciplinary work. And yet the irony, the irony is most law professors don't do interdisciplinary work. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So anyway. How, how does that interdisciplinary work usually uh, go about? Like, um, are you literally writing papers together with, um, you know, a computer scientist, for example? And um, very, very literally. Very literally. Uh, that, that's fascinating. Like, describe that process. What exactly um, spurs these projects? Is it is it issues that um, you know come out from outside, or yeah, just just walk us through that. That's really interesting. Well, the way it works at a tech policy lab is that the three co-directors and we have a flat governance structure where no one unit is above the other. Mm -hmm. Right? We're all three co-equal directors. All of the all of the money that comes in is split evenly across the units, right? It, it, it's 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 a flat structure. Anyway, the three of us sit around and talk about what is interesting to us, and talk about what we might be working on, what we're seeing in the world. Um, and at the Tech Policy Lab, all of the research is driven by faculty interest, the interest specifically of the co-directors, and often also of our closely held affiliate faculty. Um, there are some centers and, and, and labs and the like that have a, a million people affiliated with them uh, because they nominally work on a subject matter that's related. And so everybody sort of wins is the idea that they, they get the, the, the platform and we get the, mm. you know, that's not how the tech policy lab works at all. Like we, we, we only have a few faculty members and there are people that we work with regularly. Anyway, some combination of the core director, faculty, and the affiliates um, come up with a research project based on what we're all interested in. So, for example, recently, all three co-directors got really excited about uh, the use of technology in food and agriculture. Mm -hmm. So we created a team, um, one agriculture expert, um, myself, a law student, um, a team of information scientists who went in to do a case study. Uh, in um, the Metau Valley, which is a, a seat of agriculture here in, in, in Washington, a very interesting place. And so uh, we put together this team and we're gonna, we're gonna produce a, a white paper about technology policy in agriculture. And we're gonna produce um, a, uh, a, a longer journal article about values and design. And I think Nicholas, one thing to keep in mind is when you do interdisciplinary work, you need to select the earliest possible moment an audience. 
because you cannot write a paper that will play as well to computer scientists as it will to law professors. You exactly. Cannot, yeah. You, you cannot publish a paper. Yeah. That is identical in, in 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 any of these journals, right? And so you have to select from advance what who is our audience. And so for a project with computer scientists about the need to change the definition of cybersecurity in light of artificial intelligence. We put together a team with a computer scientist who does security, uh, actually two, and then uh, one who does primarily machine learning, mm-hmm. uh, and then myself and a, and a law student. And we, we decided from the outset, that we're going to write a law review article. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I took the lead on drafting it um, um, with, uh, with uh, a computer scientist writing the technical parts. And we knew our audience would be, uh, would, would, would ultimately be, you know, the legal profession, and so we wrote it to that end. But in but in another project about augmented reality and policy, we decided that we wanted to publish that in a computer science conference. Mm-hmm. And so Franziska Rosner, Franzie Rosner, who's our colleague in, in computer science, she took the lead on writing that one. And the audience was going to obviously be uh, computer scientists, and it's a very different sort of document. So sometimes the lab will do both an academic piece, a journal article. And also a white paper, and the right. white paper, the white paper is supposed to be very accessible. It's a kind of thing that when I when I write a white paper, I think to myself, my audience is legislative aides to, to members of Congress or the Senate. Mm-hmm. You know, these are like 20, 30 somethings that work for senators and help the senator, you know, work on policy. That's my audience. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, or our our audience. So you know, it, it it takes a little bit of uh, of, of thought and and a, of course a lot of um, effort, but you know ultimately again, it just feels like the only way forward. I mean, it's like, I mean, I I, I could sit in my office and just you know exactly. use, take, read those books and write articles, and I've done that too. But I mean, for me, like the really interesting stuff is 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 is, is interstitial. Yeah, I completely agree. Um... But yeah, maybe um, shifting gears a little bit uh, towards um, more concrete applications. In this case, not of interdisciplinary research, but still within the same vein of asking questions about how uh, new technologies impact uh, policy or, in this specific case, um, actions by administrative agencies. Your paper with... Um, Danielle uh, Citron. Yes, exactly on the yeah use of automated tools by administrative agencies yeah which i think is an extremely interesting um question a question to ask like how, how does that work what are the implications here because i mean at this point pretty much everyone is using automated tools of, of some kind right in, in business so the question then is obviously well why, why shouldn't governments or in this case you know um administrative agencies uh, tasked by governments for for some sort of task, use them as well, and what could go wrong, right? But maybe uh, lead us off by telling the story of some of these attempts, specifically in the paper you mentioned, uh, healthcare in in Arkansas, and uh, teacher evaluations in, in in Houston. Sure. Well, Nicholas, I just want to flag something, which is mm-hmm. that we are are now moving into a different territory. Okay. So right. as a as a law professor, the expectation on me is that I periodically, maybe once a year, produce a law review article, 
right? Okay. Um, and I will either do that solo authored where I write it myself, or sometimes I will co-author with another law professor like with Danielle Citrick. And Danielle mm-hmm. is a is a professor at UVA. She just won a MacArthur Genius Award. Um, very interesting person. Um, other times I might write something with uh, uh, you know colleagues in other fields, but this is an example of two law professors writing a law review article together, right? Um, and the second thing is that I teach administrative law here at the University of Washington, right? Um, and so oftentimes professors. As you as you know, will write about the topics that they teach uh, in order to deepen their understanding of that topic and keep it relevant and, and the like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's a very different exercise with very different goals from the work of either the center or or the lab. You know that that said, this law review article that we just published very recently with Emory Law Journal um, began with the observation that states are bringing uh, to bear automation in, in software to try to um, figure out who should get benefits and to evaluate performance and a bunch of other tasks that, re- that used to be done mostly by people. Right. Um, and, and it's been relatively disastrous. Uh, and it's, and it's, not, it's not accomplished at all the goals that that these uh, uh, state policymakers have have set out to do, um, and the example you asked me to speak to is one of the ones that leads off the the, the work, the, the article, and it's a situation in which Arkansas decided that they were spending too much time and money on nurses going into people's houses in order to figure out how much in-home service those folks needed. So there are people who were differently abled. The state was providing them with in-home in-home care, mm-hmm. and the, the question is, how much did they need? And the way that that was done, once upon a time, was that nurses would be sent to the house with a set of questions, but they would make a qualitative assessment of how much was needed, and then they would go back and give it a number. They would they would quantify it. They would say this person needs this many hours in conversation with that person, in, in, in situ, right, in the person's house, to site visit. So what they decided that they could do in Arkansas is they could automate the process by having a kind of, a bunch of different inputs and an algorithm would spit out the amount of, of, of time that they needed, right? And, you know, it, it dramatically reduced the overall recommended hours. So that's one, one thing about it. Which probably presumably, should. sorry, presumably that was part of the goal, right? Because you were mentioning that the, the, fir- the qu- first question is ar- that arises, okay, why do these um, agencies do this in the first place? And, and you just mentioned, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's ultimately an attempt to become more efficient at service delivery, which presumably yeah, but, means reducing some of it, yeah. Well, Nicholas, I mean, you know, in, 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 in theory, right, what, what, you, what you'd want to do with such a system is you'd want to reduce the overhead mm-hmm. necessary in, in getting it right. In mm-hmm. other words, you, what you want is you want to make sure that you're providing every person the amount of services they need and no more than that. Exactly. Yeah. Right? And so, and so the, the, the purpose of the algorithm should not be to reduce the services just to reduce them. Rather, the efficiency, enough, yeah. the efficiency is supposed to come from not having to send nurses out there, 
You know what I mean? Because they're paying a lot of money to have personnel go to people's houses. And and yes, there is an intuition that these people are over, uh, that they're inflating the amount of care that's needed because they're listening to sob stories and whatever. Mm-hmm. So there is, that's in the background. But in theory, it, 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 it could either make there be more in-home care needed or it could make there be less in, you know, right. it should be. Oh. Anyway, what happens, of course, is that dramatically less is recommended and of course they, they they fire or they repurpose a bunch of people who have been doing that work um so the folks who had their benefits reduced it was devastating for them mm-hmm. and so they they appealed it through a, a process and what was so incredible to danielle and i and i think to the litigants themselves who ended up being in court over this was how poor the state officials were in being able to explain what this algorithm did and how it worked, right? And so in one instance, there's this great um, attorney named Kevin DeLaban who brought a lot of these lawsuits to challenge the um, reduction of services. In one example, what Kevin found was that an algorithm um, decided to reduce the amount of in service recommended care for an individual who who was an amputee because the algorithm noticed that he no longer had foot problems. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that like is, it would, it would be funny were it not so horrible. Right. And so it's like, and so, and so the, 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 this algorithm behaved absurdly in a way a person never, ever would. And that's one of the things that he found and one of the facts that we included up front in our paper, but, but the, but the significance of it, Nicholas is the following. The fact that these officials don't understand how the system works and can't explain it Mm -hmm. is deeply problematic because the whole purpose of having administrative agencies handle things is that they're supposed to be domain experts. Right. And they're supposed to be nimble. The The whole grand bargain of having giant bureaucracies, which are not actually contemplated by the Constitution of the United States, you know, but for you know, the Constitution mentions a couple of agencies, implies a couple of agencies, but nothing like the contemporary administrative state that we live under, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the idea behind this extra constitutional arrangement, where these giant bureaucracies write rules and, and, and interpret and enforce them, is that we need them because they have these expertise. They, they, you know, the, the Congress cannot become expert in toxicity and, and, and water pollution. So we need the EPA, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and the other thing, the other reason that justifies them is the world is dynamic and, and changing and they need to be nimble and, and dynamic too. And they need to be much more nimble than, than Congress can be because it only meets periodically and it has to deal with everything. So that's the bargain we strike. And here these same agencies are turning around and at least at the state level, they're throwing away that expertise and that discretion and that nimbleness with both hands by recommitting it to software that they don't understand and can't change. Right. And and so and so what the rest of the title of the paper is the automated administrative state a crisis of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. And the main contribution of the paper is that if we take as our normative baseline that we justify the administrative state by reference to expertise and discretion and the administrative state is giving up both of those things on purpose, you know what I mean? Then 
like we, what is the justification anymore of the administrative state, right? And so that's the move that we make there. But it's it's a purely legal move, you know. It's like it's and it and it's like taking like you know what I like about the project is it's taking you know a century uh, of uh, a century of uh, or more um, of of jurisprudence that justifies administrative agencies functionally. Uh, and it's asking, do those justifications still hold up in light of contemporary technology? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you mentioned this in passing in the in the article, right? I mean, the, the, so the first <clears throat> point being that one argument in favor of algorithms, I suppose, uh, in the broadest sense, is that uh, they're supposed to be more objective. I mean, maybe more closer to home for you. Um, I know that there are discussions or and attempts, right, to automate um, parole decisions or um, sentencing of, of, of some kind on some level where the idea is that, well, you know, humans are biased. If we, if we give this to a machine, to an algorithm, they're going to be more objective in their assessments. People have debated the fact that, you know, obviously you're possibly just uh, substituting one uh, set of biases for another. But now the question is really like, well, what, what, are, the, um, what, what are the values that are imbued in the algorithm, right? That then... Um, uh, possibly uh, reproduce a different form of bias. The other issue being that um, these machines need to be trained on data, right? If that data is biased, um, then you have this garbage in, garbage out problem. The fundamental uh, issue that that I wanted to uh, speak to you about is the question that, okay, you say that, well, you know, these agencies have a legitimacy problem because they're no longer uh, the bastions of expertise. Does this mean that we're Possibly, this is, um, has so far been an indirect privatization of whatever the function is that they've been serving before, where possibly the future move would be to be much more explicit about it, right? Because now it's no longer really the agency that is providing the service, but it's some software developer, right? And so uh, the, the um, Congress presumably could directly transact with this software developer and wouldn't have to do this, go this indirect route of um, routing through an agency. Mm -hmm. Well, we say that in the paper as a provocation, right? I mean, right. If, 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 if you're going to be contracting with software to do your job, why, does, why can't Congress do that directly, right? Mm -hmm. so, so I would say that there's a whole conversation, like there's a whole literature around the problem with privatization of government functions. Mm -hmm. Right. So, for example, there's a there's a book by Freeman and Minow that's called Government by Contract. Mm -hmm. That is about some of the legitimate legitimacy problems that arise, but often also the due process and transparency issues that arise when the government has a job to do and they recommit it to some private entity. And so a very good example is federal prisons. Mm -hmm. You know um, what happens when you take. Uh, 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 something that is, that is supposed to be the job of the federal government, which is to incarcerate people who are guilty of federal crimes um, or, or being held in, 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 in advance of trial, and you, and you commit that instead to a private entity, what, what kinds of issues does that arise, right? Mm -hmm. and, so, and so, you know, we, we, Danielle and I agree that that is uh, its own problem, right? But, but Automation adds something even more to that, mm -hmm. which which is that that the agency officials do not understand even how it works. Mm -hmm. They can't understand how it works, right? Easily, um, and they can't change it. And I think that that while some of those 
qualities are, are maybe there are parallels to the sort of arguments about government by contract. You know, there might be senses in which, um, say, the military that contracts with some kind of private security force, right? Maybe they they don't know or they don't want to know how those forces operate. You know, maybe they can't. You know, but but in theory, at least, when you when you privatize, it, you're you're you're, you're able to exercise an amount of oversight you can figure out how that entity is doing it it's not a proverbial black box mm-hmm. inevitably whereas with this con- with these with these software contractors um you know, they, they they literally you have these public officials on the stand in litigation or getting deposed Deposition is when you ask a set of questions to the opposition in advance of the trial to establish the testimony. Where they're like, I don't know how, I can't explain to you, I don't know how it works. You know what I mean? And and and, and that is really interesting, right? And it's especially interesting again when the very justification uh, of of the administrative state has to do with these values of expertise and nimbleness. So um, I don't I don't doubt for a moment. I don't think Danielle doubts for a moment that that there is there are parallels between government privatization and you know software uh, uh, you know Danielle has written um, much more extensively on this topic than I she has a paper that is really famous in my field that's called technological due process mm-hmm. that's that's about the way in which reducing rules and regulations to code, to software, um, makes it hard for the public to have input, Right. Makes, makes it hard to challenge it in court and so on. So, you know, we, we, we used it in our paper, we used as our starting background assumption that all, all the things you said about bias earlier, uh, the, the fact that it's from a due process standpoint, it's difficult to challenge these algorithms. The fact that often, because they're private coders involved, that that they hide behind trade secret, mm-hmm. and 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 it's hard for criminal defendants, in particular, as Rebecca Wexler writes, to to challenge um, algorithms that affect them adversely because of trade secret law. Uh, we're, we're taking all that as a given. Mm-hmm. You know, we're like these are all these problems, but we're saying in addition to that. There is a deeper underexplored legitimacy issue. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's different from saying like you know due process doesn't work the way you think anymore. Notice and comment by the public and rulemaking doesn't work the way you think it, it does anymore, and so on. Right? That's one that these systems are biased in ways that are hard to challenge and problematic. Right? We 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 are starting assuming that's all true, mm-hmm. and we're saying oh by the way this whole edifice. Of the administrative state is is built upon the assumption that the people in it are deeply expert in the subject matter. That's why they exist, right? And so it's it's just a different move. It's an additional move from from that builds on the prior move. Yeah. So I mean, but what's the implication then? Does that mean that uh, these agencies are somehow, um, from a legitimacy point uh, viewpoint, structurally unable to implement these uh, these technologies, or does that mean that you just have to get smart on these technologies to 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 circumvent that issue? That's a good question. I mean, so I think that's the question at this point, which mm-hmm. is the options are dismantle the administrative state, which yeah. 
neither Danielle and I want to do. I mean, that that's the dream of like the sort of Gingrich revolution is to like, you know, dismantle the, it's like you, what you do is you, you give the government too few resources to do its job well. And then you point out how poorly governments do things, you know, I mean, that's the playbook. Um, we don't want to defund, you know, the administrative state uh, or destroy it. The other option would be to take away these, these 21st century tools Mm-hmm. That that literally every other sector mm-hmm. is using. We don't think that makes sense either. And so the third option is the hardest, and that is coming up with a set of criteria, a heuristic, wherein some use cases will be allowed and encouraged, and others will be forbidden. And so mm-hmm. what we what we take aim at in the paper that we're talking about is automated decision making. Right. But but we we expressly say, and then I have a follow up paper that argues more by myself more more thoroughly that not only can government use contemporary ICT information communication technology, but in some circumstances, it has an obligation to do so because that's mm. the state of the art. Right. Um, and and so but I think that's the central challenge going forward. Right. And maybe it's something beyond my my capacity as a scholar or just I haven't you know gotten to it yet but the, the, the question is what precisely is the what delineates technologies that are okay to use necessary to use versus forbidden and problematic right and so you know Danielle and I just have described forbidden and problematic but there's a there's a there's a set of technologies to be explored that are that are not I mean if something were to what we say in the paper is that when government uses things that enhance their flexibility and enhance their expertise, mm-hmm. right, then then they are deepening the justification for the administrative state. Right. Um, but but it's a little hard to come up with concrete examples of that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. So far, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. But it, it strikes me that you still and I'm, I'm assuming that would be implied in your suggestion here that uh, you, you still have this transparency issue that um, it's not really clear often how decisions are made. And then, especially for the people who are affected by them, um, you describe this as a due process issue, but it has to be, it has to be possible for people to somehow have an idea of why, you know, certain services are denied to them to then be able to challenge them, right? If they feel like that's, um, yeah, violating their rights in any way. Nicholas, it, 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 it's mandated by the Constitution, right? I mean, if you if you have if you have something that counts as as a benefit to which you're actually entitled, which all mm-hmm. that takes all that takes essentially is a is a representation by the government that you can have it. You know, once it's taken away from you, the Constitution says that you have are entitled to process, mm-hmm. and and that process involves. You know, it's malleable in the, in the administrative state. You know, what constitutes adequate process is to some extent up to the agency, but then it's vetted by the courts. But you need some kind of process, right? And if, and if you don't have any process um, by which you can contest the deprivation mm-hmm. of some material benefit to you that you were, that you were promised, um, you know, then, uh, then that's not that constitutionally problematic. But I have to say that, Nicholas, scholars have been writing about that for a decade. 
you know, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a piece by Kate Crawford and Jason Schultz about it. Danielle's written about it repeatedly. Paul Schwartz has written about it. You know, a team at, 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 at a pen, uh, well, a pen is written, I mean, you know, it, 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 people have certainly written that when you automate um, decision-making about people and it takes stuff away from them, that they, that they don't have adequate due process, right? And at one level, that is not just, it's a legitimacy problem. It's like, you know, we, you know, there's a reason that there's due process, right? Um, but I just want to emphasize that that is not the topic of my paper with Danielle, you know, because it, it's, it's just a different question. And, and I think it's really incumbent upon us as law and technology scholars to delineate what our normative baseline is. In other words, since we're being so prescriptive and we're being so critical and we're saying this is bad and you should do that, right? Which is what all law professors do. They say, this is bad, you should do that instead. What, well, but, but what's the normative baseline? And if, mm-hmm. the idea, if the idea is that technology has disrupted the status quo ex ante, that is to say, once upon a time, you could exercise due process rights, but now that machines are making decisions instead of people, you can't. Well, then your normative baseline is the literal constitution that says that you're guaranteed something you're no longer getting. Right. right? Whereas with, with Danielle in my paper, the normative baseline is, hey, you told us this big bureaucracy was okay because of expertise and discretion, and they're, they're bleeding expertise and discretion left and right. Exactly, yeah. What I would like you to close on is uh, the fact that you flagged uh, before we got into this topic, saying that this is a very different aspect of your work in general. Um, so I'm just curious for you to maybe close on how what we just talked about differs, at least in your mind, apparently quite drastically from your work with um, uh, these interdisciplinary centers that you were describing at the beginning of our conversation. Well, I, I, I have a very enlightened Set of colleagues. My, my faculty has been so supportive of, of uh, having impact in different ways, mm-hmm. right? But, but the expectations of a law professor is that you're going to write these 50-page, 300-footnote law review articles every year, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that the way I got in the door here and the way that I got uh, promoted to associate professor with tenure and ultimately to a professor, full professor, was not really on the back of, you know, these white papers and these interdisciplinary right. publications, though they've been the great joy of my career. And though I have testified now three times before the Senate about emerging technology on the basis of interdisciplinary work I've done. Um, the, the, the currency of the realm, Nicholas, is these law review articles, right? right? And in some cases, I've been able to combine my passion for interdisciplinarity with my obligation mm-hmm. as, a, as a faculty in the law school to write law review articles. Um, so, for example, um, uh, uh, I wrote a paper with an ethnographer about Uber. Um, I wrote this law review article I mentioned earlier with computer science colleagues, you know, but those have been the exception and not the rule. Now, that's mm-hmm. not to say I, I am super proud of the work with Danielle, and I'm super proud of many of my law review articles. And I think that um, I think they've had an impact. And I, you know, I mean, I don't mean to. Um, it's not very Pacific Northwest of me, what I'm about to say. But, you know, the truth is, is that I am among the most cited scholars in law and technology in America um, mm-hmm. in, by the numbers. Right. 
and a lot of what's being cited are these law review articles, right? But right. I, but I, I also think that my interdisciplinary uh, path has enriched and informed my my straightforward law review work, right? So I'm just, I, I, I'm not trying to say that one is better or not. I'm just saying that, like, you know, um, th there's a huge difference to me between putting together an interdisciplinary team to make to make coherent policy recommendations, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and writing a law review article that uh, contributes to an established discourse in the legal academy. These are just right. that's why that's why I was differentiating the two, Nicholas. Not to not for evaluative purposes, just to say these are just different things. They're just different yeah. enterprises. And um, you know, I, I, again, I, I've I've been able to combine both. I think I've sacrificed something though. Um, you know, in, in in both realms. I mean, I think I could be doing. Uh, more, even more impactful work in in in, in um, at the interdisciplinary world if I didn't write law review articles and similarly my law review articles could be could be better uh, and and more if I were doing interdisciplinary work but um, I'm not complaining I I've I've really <laughs> felt felt very lucky in my in my in my position Ryan Kalo thank you so much for being part of the podcast yeah thank you for your interesting questions. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wittstock. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.